Good afternoon. It is Friday, July 23rd. This is Chickie Fitzgerald, the founder of the Executive Girlfriends Group, and it is my pleasure to introduce two guests today. I think that this is a first for the Executive Girlfriends Group. Uh, we have got a couple of amazing authors who, uh, who write about issues of communication in, in the workplace. And uh, the, the book that we decided to focus uh, most of our time on today is called Working With You Is Killing Me, Freeing Yourself from Emotional Traps at Work. Uh, but the other one that I thought was also uh, very, very interesting, and I've put this on our Executive Girlfriends Group bookstore as well, Working For You Isn't Working For Me. And, uh, you know, as a consultant, uh, you know, I find these books uh, every bit as interesting as, as when I used to work uh, in, in corporate life. So uh, I'm going to be interested in hearing your perspectives of, of where you guys have been. So, um, Catherine, why don't we start with you and have you just give us a little bit of your own uh, background, and then we'll turn it over to Kathy. Uh, I, I don't care which one of you, but I'd love to hear how the two of you got together and uh, what you guys do as your day job, because I know uh, you have some things that you're doing together other than just authoring. Sure. Uh, well, my name is Catherine Crowley. I'm a Harvard-trained psychotherapist, and actually, uh, Kathy and I met many years ago, over, tw- I think it's 23 or 24 years ago. Oh. <laughs> I hear Kathy sighing. how old we are. <laughs> no, but that's very We were diapers at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In any case, uh, so we have a long history. She was running strategy support groups for business owners, and she took me actually as a charity case, and um, I immediately was incredibly impressed with her. Um, my interest has always been psychology and the psychological challenges of workplace relationships and also helping people really discover who they are and finding the right work to fit them. And as a psychotherapist, I've spent a lot of time, and both Kathy and I have talked a lot about how to assist people in moving through any emotional obstacles that would prevent them from really realizing their dreams. And uh, while we worked with business owners for many, many years, over time, we began to branch out into corporations, and I've always worked with individuals giving counseling, and really we've developed this information which combines business strategy and psychological tactics for helping people manage their relationships and really thrive at work. And I'm Kathy Elster. Uh, I'm the executive coach part of the team. And uh, I had a successful career in the fashion industry. But um, just around early 80s, I didn't really like the direction fashion was going in. And, uh, you know, it was really changing. And I, I, I just wanted to do something different. So left the industry and started doing consulting. And as I would go into companies, and I had a good reputation because I was very successful, um, I wanted to solve business problems for my clients, but I kept running into psychological problems. (laughs) And I thought, this is so odd for a business consultant. I just want to write your marketing plan. I don't really want to hear why you can't get out of bed in the morning. And it was all very confusing. And that was one of the reasons that Catherine and I hooked up. We started, I started to run these scenarios by Catherine, and then she would explain to me, you know, people have different fears of success and different resistance to uh, making changes. And we just started working together. And to, to be totally honest, and 23 years ago, you couldn't tell people that you were doing this. 
You couldn't right. say we were doing uh, business therapy. It wasn't acceptable. There weren't coaches then. So we weren't that successful. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we started by working with small businesses because they liked it. They figured right. early on they realized that their business was a reflection of them. They were more open to yeah. working with us. Uh, but then as we grew in our work and, and our content and the more, you know, we did this, the larger our companies would get. And then when Working With You Is Killing Me came out in 2006, it really changed our lives. I have to say it opened up our world. And now we work with the government, a lot of different departments of the government, very big hospitals, not-for-profits, universities, and it's really no different than a small business. It's the same, you know, it's the same interpersonal dynamics. Um, I think I covered, yeah, how Well, I, I find that absolutely fascinating. And, and when you take a look at, at uh, as I said, you know, I, I've been doing consulting for 15 years, and, and I ran into the exact same thing that, of what you're talking about, is, is you take a look at, at what is holding companies back. And so often it is, people and yeah. and whether right. they're not in the right role or uh or they're carrying scars um you know some of them personal scars and and uh you know as I look back to my own business career I carried business scars of how I had been treated sure. and and how uh, I happened at one point to have worked for a woman who uh just criticized everything and it wasn't yeah. personal for me she did it for everyone and she would write these little tiny notes in the margin and and on anything that you turned in and then I shifted companies and I my boss one day said to me, Chicky, you know, you can put things in writing because I was coming into his office every time I wanted to share something. And I was like, and, and I, it was then I realized that, no, I couldn't put things in writing because it was going to get criticized. So, um, you know, again, I, I love uh, the, the business notion that you address in both of these books. So I want to take uh, enough time that we can, you know, kind of touch on, on the table of contents in both of them because uh, I would really encourage people, and again, whether you're in between success is uh, you know like Marge or Chris is is the chief operating officer of a, a very very early stage startup and Janet obviously works for a very large company in Mastercard and Michelle's with a medium sized company so I think we've actually got the perfect audience today uh, live audience um, you know for for both of these topics because you run into it in in every one of those situations so let's let's start with working with you is killing me so. What was it that made you guys tackle this particular problem and and uh, you know and actually put it into a book that became a national bestseller? Well, I mean, I'll start, and Kathy, you will jump in, but I will just say that we found ourselves working, going into businesses, working, as Kathy said, you know, a, approaching, hearing business problems, and are starting to approach them using both our psychological tactics and business strategies and we realized that if we really wanted to have an impact we needed to find a way to describe what we do with people in a very concrete manner and we actually started out with one book and it turned into another because what we realized was that and what we learned in, in working with others was that we needed to speak to the pain so to speak that we needed to create something that helped people when they were caught in 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 a business relationship that they didn't know how to manage. And that's how we came up with the the book and the, and what is inside the book which is called the unhooking technique. 
Mm. I want to add that, you know, our original proposal was for a book called Familiar Company. (laughs) And it it was a book about how we go to work and duplicate our family. So our boss becomes our father or our mother, and our coworkers become our siblings, and we get into the same kind of relationships. And no publisher would buy it. They said, oh, this is right, (laughs) and we love you girls, but no one's going to buy that book. And, you know, it... it, That's right. We now understand that, of course, it was writing the great American encyclopedia on psychology in the workplace, and no one wants that. So we were able to turn it around and, you know, and look at, well, what really, let's come up with a category. So if you look at the table of contents, there's a chapter on boundaries, how to set boundaries. There's a chapter on roles. You don't have to be stuck in a role. So we try to break it down, you know, with the right. fatal attractions, into the areas that we thought would really help people um, see, okay, wait a minute, I'm doing something here. It's not just the other person. I'm doing something here that I can change, which will change my, my whole relationship, all my relationships at work. And sort of the premise behind it all is that you cannot change somebody else all you can do is change your reaction to them. Right. right. And I love the statement of if you can change your reaction, you'll yeah. change your life. It's true. That's right. And we tried to also take it on and you know, take the reader through gradual stages. Like the first thing, the basic unhooking is the technique that we repeat through many of the chapters. But once you get into what we call fatal attractions and those are the relationships. So you unhook for someone who's an irritating colleague who's always clearing their throat incessantly, right? Or you learn how to unhook when someone is gets in your business and you want them to stay out of your business. But when it comes to those really tough people, like you mentioned that chronic critic or dealing with a sacred cow or dealing with someone who is lying to you constantly, then we had a more advanced process, which we called our advanced unhooking technique. We really tried to look and then managing up and managing down and how to handle all those relationships. And so, you know, there are a lot of different ways of laying a book out, and, and those who are regulars know that, that I'm just a real sucker for books that are uh, incredibly practical, where you can almost use them as a workbook. And, and I do love how you guys have, have woven into the book, uh, you know, kind of checklists and steps and, and little tests to see if you actually fall into a particular category. Mm-hmm. So why don't, why don't we start with, uh, with talking about boundaries? Because, uh, you know, I've had a, a lot of discussion in, in my household and with, with close friends who are dealing with people, uh, you know, who actually have addictions and, and, you know, that kind of insidious behavior that kind of touches every part of you. So talk to me a little bit about boundaries at work and, and really protecting yourself, which is what the, the title of the chapter is, The Business of Boundaries, Protecting Yourself at Work. Mm-hmm. You want to start, Catherine? Sure, I'll start. Well, So let's just talk about what a boundary is. An interpersonal boundary is different. We know what geographic boundaries look like, right? <laughs> you know what the border of a state is. You know when someone has a fence around their house. What we start out saying is that interpersonal boundaries, those boundaries at work, are particularly tricky because they are invisible. So what is acceptable to me and what is acceptable to you, I only learn by virtue of you communicating it to me or by virtue of me experiencing it from you. So one of the things we say is that boundaries are very challenging because they are visible and they differ from person to person. The second thing we say is that you set a boundary by communicating it 
you know, through your words and your actions. And the third thing that we say is that mixed messages will give you mixed results. So even if you say that you like everyone to arrive on time and you keep accepting people arriving late and pushing your deadline or pushing your meeting, what you're really saying is that time doesn't matter that much to me. So those are the three things we start out saying. And then we have the categories for boundaries. And Kathy, maybe you want to go into some of those. Well, you know, we all have, we all fall on the spectrum of a boundary. We all have different levels. So, for instance, with touching, you know, there are some people that really like to touch you when they're talking. They like to hug. They like to kiss. And there are people that feel, no, do not touch me in the workplace. So we have to learn to also respect, you know, know what our boundaries are and that not everybody's like us. Right. And that, that's one that gets broken a lot, especially where, you know, one person will just take something off your desk. You know, uh, they, don't have, they don't have those kinds. They think, well, it belongs to the company. It doesn't belong to you. So, you know, we all fall somewhere on the spectrum when it comes to that or when it comes to time is a very big one where some people feel 9 o'clock is anywhere between 9 and 9.15. Right. Some people feel 9 o'clock is exactly 9 o'clock on the nose. And so, you know, you're going to fall, you're going to have problems with people that have a different relationship to time than you do. We have manners. This is, we like to say this is the area that is small but the biggest resentments. Mm-hmm. Right. Some people feel everyone in the office has to say good morning and good evening and thank you. And we have an office manager like this. She won't, she hates anyone who is not polite to her. She's like that. It's very, very important to her. And then we once had a tenant who just didn't know that you're. You know, he just doesn't say good morning. He never said goodbye. He just didn't have any manners. And you know, so again, that's sort of on the spectrum, and it builds big resentments. But most of the time, when it comes to boundaries, the the person who's breaking your boundaries is completely unaware. That's right. Completely has no idea. They have no idea because they don't have it. Well, I think it's interesting that you made the comment that, you know, you actually can, you know, see the boundaries between states and, and, and different things. But we we went on vacation with our children not, not long ago, and as we were crossing from uh, North Carolina into Georgia, we, you know, I, I teased my daughter and I said, oh, did you see the dotted line? We we, we just passed over the border. <laughs> and, and so actually, you know, other than the sign that says you're entering into Georgia, you know, you, you actually don't always have, have the, the boundaries and you have to actually rise above the situation like yeah. you do in looking down on a map to actually clearly see that distinction. So, uh, you know, I really love using that, that metaphor because it's easy then to talk to people about that. And sometimes you do have to put up a sign that says, look, time does matter to me. Or, by the way, I happen to be one of those that, you know, I'm, I'm much more tolerant of, of time issues, uh, you know, because I wasn't raised with that being important to me. So I, I think as, as long as you have the dialogue and the communication and, and put up the sign that says, you know, Here, here's where I am, then the other person can realize that they've crossed over it without even knowing it. Right. Um, let's let's move on a little bit because I'm very interested in this one, uh, which is Chapter Three in in the first book that we're talking about. If the role fits, uh-huh. you don't have to. Worry. <laughs> Tell me what's behind that one. Well, again, I'll start with the intro, and Kathy, you can jump uh-huh, in with descriptions or we'll go back and forth. However, um, roles. Actually, this is actually one of our favorite chapters because it starts at saying. 
you know, sometimes the problem is you. (laughs) And what we mean by that is that we all learn roles early in life. You know, uh, Madonna was probably a rebel from the moment she arrived, right? Mm -hmm. And other people have been heroic all their lives or been quiet and invisible. So one of the things we know is that when people come to work, they bring those roles with them. And one of the things we do to adapt to any situation is we we do the behaviors that we know work for us. So if I'm someone who's a natural caregiver, I'm going to come to work and I'll, you know, find out everyone's birthday and I'll give them birthday cards and I'll offer water and I'll have Kleenex in my room and that kind of thing. So there's nothing wrong with having a role. But the point that we make in the book is that you're trapped in a role if it's hurting you at work. And some of the signs that that may be true would be that you find yourself boxed in a certain kind of a role, you know, oh, so-and-so is always a troublemaker or so-and-so never has a fresh idea. Uh, If you find that people are constantly misinterpreting the intention of your actions, oh, you know, this person is just brown-nosing or they're just trying to win points. Uh, If you find that you're constantly overlooked or excluded from promotions or raises, then you're stuck in a specific role, and we want to give you tools to unhook. I'll give you a perfect example because um, I'm an entertainer. Mm-hmm. I was brought up to be an entertainer, the baby in the family, you know, adorable. Everybody, you know, would look to me to break the tension. So entertainers tend to be the tension breakers in the office. They're very friendly, and uh, at a meeting when there's a tense moment, everybody looks at the entertainer to make the right joke at the right moment. And they always get away with it because the boss thinks they're adorable. You, you know those, that kind of person. But oh. that person is not taken seriously. They'll go, they'll go okay in their career until they want a promotion because right. they're no, they get boxed and branded in that role. So, again, it's fine to be an entertainer until it boxes you or brands you and you get overlooked for a promotion. Same thing with the troublemaker. We call them the rebel or the scapegoat, you know, the person who feels they have to say what everyone's thinking. They have to be the one to say <laughs> that would it. Be me. Right. Oh, okay, good. They so, have to render justice. Yeah. It's your job. <laughs> yes. And yeah, your God given job. Well, so what happens to you and I'm sure you know, is that if there's any trouble brewing, they're gonna point a finger at you. Oh, must have been chicky. She must have done that. You get very <laughs> no branded in that role. And it's difficult to break free of it. So, again, it's fine. I mean, you know, a rebel is really needed in a company because they do bring up the unsaid. But when it starts to hurt you, that's when you've got to break free of it. Right. So, And everybody plays them. Everybody. We learn them early in life in our family. Right. And as we're talking, you're probably thinking of friends, right, that are, that are stuck in roles. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just going to rattle off the seven that we have. We have the hero, and that's the person who, you know, saves constantly saves the day. Most people think they own the company, and they're just fabulous, but also they tend to take on too much work, work themselves to death, and destroy their home life. We have the caretaker, who's the unpaid social worker, feels responsible, and tries to solve everyone's personal problems. The rebel, Kathy mentioned. Then we have the martyr, and this is the person who quietly but with a little noise moaning, <laughs> takes on 
all the unwanted work and wants to be recognized for the sacrifice that they make. The entertainer, Kathy mentioned, who keeps everyone, you know, happy and breaks the tension, has the jokes. The peacemaker, who's the local Gandhi, you know, always tries to find the common ground. And then the invisible one. And this is the person who early in life learned to stay out of trouble by staying out of the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Now there are more, but these were the ones that um, you know we thought were really the, the most. You know, that most right. people fall into these. Now I'm I'm also uh, very intrigued by chapter four, which is you know haven't we met before? Fatal attractions at work. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is. I feel like I'm the gloom and doom gal, but this is my favorite chapter. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> These are the most painful (laughs) relationships. But the reason I find them fascinating as a psychotherapist is that the the, the most important characteristic of a fatal attraction is that the beginning is so hopeful, Chicky, you know. It's like if you meet someone, I mean, we have these things, the exploder, the empty pit, the saboteur, the pedestal smasher, the chip on the shoulder. But going in, for example, the exploder, and that's an obvious one, right? Uh, this is a person who has a temper problem, you know, that individual when you first meet them is so dynamic. And if you are drawn to this kind of a person, you you are hoping that it's going to be a great relationship and they're going to take you places you never thought possible. Right. And that's what's true about fatal attractions is that initially it's so exciting you're almost high, you know. And then it slowly flips, not because you've changed, but because there is another dark side to the individual you didn't know about that suddenly appears. And then you are trapped in this relationship, and you go, we even have seven stages of a fatal attraction. Oh, wow. You you go through this process, and by the end, if you go to the very end of it, you literally feel like a prisoner because you can't, you don't know, you can't get it back to its original great beginning, and you don't know how to get out unscathed. What's, what I want to say that's important about a fatal attraction in this kind of a short uh, time period we have with yeah. you guys is that we call them a fatal attraction because you're attracted to them. And we've noticed that people may switch jobs, but they tend to end up with the same kind of boss, right. the same mm. kind of coworker, And that's because you play a role in this. Right. You you you're absolutely attracted to a certain kind of personality that ends up being fatal for you. It's and we each have our own brand. That's the other do. thing. And we what we try to get you to see is identify what is it about yourself and how do you break that? What is it that you're so attracted to? What are you trying to get from this person uh-huh. or this company that ultimately really doesn't work for you. So it's, right. it's important to break that pattern because, again, we're not going to change the exploder. We're not going to change the saboteur. They're going to go on doing that. Right. Right. You, wa- you want to break your pattern of being attracted to it. And I'll give an example because my specialty is the pedestal smasher. And this is someone who, you know, so I'm hungry. The, the part of me that's not whole is hungry to be seen as this wonderful, special, super-duper, fabulous person who can solve every problem. Well, pedestal smashers, what they do is initially they compliment the bejesus out of you and tell you how amazing you are and how you're going to solve their problems and how they've never seen someone with your capability before. And then you get into the relationship and two or three weeks in, they start to find fault with what you're doing. So they put you up on the pedestal because they want you to solve, they want you to be able to solve all their problems. 
which is impossible. But then as soon as you get up there, you're going to be smashed down. So for someone like me, I'm, I want to get back on that pedestal. You know, when that person then starts to find fault with everything I do and say, I'm so disappointed, I thought you were better than this, now I'm caught, I'm hooked, as we like to say, and I'm going to do everything I can to get back into that person's good graces, which I can't do. Why are you? I think I had dinner with one of these people <laughs> this week. Why are you attracted to a pedestal smasher, though? What's what's in it for you? Yeah, I think what's in it for me is that I want to feel special. And I want to believe that I'm good enough. And underneath that, of course, is that I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, for each of these fatal attractions, there's a different thing. Like the empty pit who draws you in and wants you to help them and then become, sucks you dry of your energy. If I'm drawn to that, I want to be the person who saves someone or yeah, who helps right. someone. Yeah. So did these uh, go hand in hand with the previous chapters roles? That's a really interesting point. I think you could probably, we could make a corollary, although I don't know. I mean, like, Kathy, you're, what would you say your fatal attraction is? Well, I, I, an empty pit, definitely. Yeah, which we share. We and, both like empty pits. Yeah, there, yeah. And, and I'm an entertainer, and that there's definitely something to that. When I meet an empty pit, it's a challenge for me. I think, yeah. oh, because my mother was an empty pit, just like just a little FYI there. So, you know, I'm always trying to correct that initial relationship. I always think that I have the ability to make them undepressed. You know, they're not going to be depressed around me, and I'm going to make them laugh and everything's going to be great. But I can't change them. I have to stop being drawn to them. I have to cut that off when I see them. And that's what we really hope to enlighten people with. Right. Their part. And to Kathy's point... Sorry, can I just say one more thing that I think what's true is that your fatal attraction or attractions, whatever they look like, there's usually some history to it, you know. There's something you're trying to get. Like for me, I'm trying to get the critical person to find me acceptable. You know, that's the history. Right. So uh, and that we don't go into that too much in the book, although we do ask what fear about yourself does this person trigger in you? That's something you can ask that will give you important information. Very interesting. Well, I'm going to jump over the next two chapters because I do want to breeze through the table of contents of the other book as well for those people who tend to have more of a challenge with the person they're working for as opposed to the people that they're working with. But uh, I want to jump uh, down to Chapter 7, which is Managing Down uh, Business Parenting. So uh, the whole relationship with people who who work for you and and partners that you manage. Well, what's so interesting about that is um, so many new managers – and even older managers think, I'm not their parent, I don't want to parent them. But the truth is, the way you manage people is very similar to parenting. And I think once you understand that, that you do have to repeat, no, you can't do that, repeatedly. Um, you know, They didn't hear you, and they're testing you. Then you start to, you know, management becomes a little bit more comfortable for you. Because I think we have a lot of preconceived notions about the way people should behave mm-hmm. and the way people should respect us. But, you know, as we said when we started this interview, people come to work with suitcases, trunks of issues. Mm-hmm. They bring all of their problems, who they are, and all their nuttiness to the office. And as a manager, we want you to be very clear and crisp and communicate and repeat your communication. The more you repeat it, the better. 
consistent, persistent, if you want the results out of people. So a lot of the chapter is going over the assumptions that we have that hurt us as a manager. You want right. to say something? Sure. Well, uh, sure. I mean, I, what I can say is that to that point, it's and maybe those of you who are listening, it'd be really interesting to ask yourself if there are assumptions that you have, you know, like they should be able to take care of themselves, they should act like grown-ups, I shouldn't have to repeat myself. Really think about what those assumptions are that you have that, that then create a resistance to managing down because that's a huge part of the problem. You know, they should know what I need. Many managers want to have their minds read or they shouldn't make mistakes. You know, there's some managers who just cannot tolerate mistakes. I'm not, I'm sure no one listening here. But it's really interesting to just consider if there are what we would call supervisory shoulds that you are working with that get in the way of being effective, an effective manager with your staff. And those are so powerful. And I mean, I can certainly see them in myself because uh, I love the you know the visionary and strategic part of leading but yeah. uh many of these shoulds get in, in my own way i know when i'm i'm having to manage people so um and i just want to reiterate the the four key principles of business parenting are that employees need to know exactly what's expected of them employees need consistent feedback they will test their environment and business tools uh are a manager's best friends and and um you know certainly the the first three and i am the mother of of small children so i absolutely uh can relate to the fact that those are the things that that are also true about true parenting so um well what I, we I, mean I, by business tools can should i explain that yes yes because, please do because you know the the beauty of uh the workplace is that we actually do have rules and we have policies and procedures and you know we have laws whereas at home it's a little bit you know free uh, you know, you have to kind of make it up. So we have, the luxury is that we have business tools. So we like you to manage on facts rather than on personality. So if someone is repeatedly late and it's a problem, because that does bring down morale to the rest of the staff, you have a policy that backs you on that right. to right. discipline uh, and to give somebody a warning, which is a real luxury. And sometimes we forget that. We try to you know, uh, reason with the person and argue with the person, but really it's a fact. This is a workplace rule. So that, that's what we mean to use those. That um, uh, We see too many managers, and especially women, when they start to hear somebody's story, they lighten up on them. They, they don't hold them to the, uh, to the job because they, can't, they, they will compensate for them and let them get away with things because they know too much about them, and mm -hmm. we're suggesting you don't do that. And actually, one of the most important and simplest business tools is just documentation, which I'm sure you all already know, but you know, it's writing down. If there's a behavior you don't like or a result that's not happening, you have goals for your staff, but then you also have written descriptions of what is or is not being accomplished. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that as an entrepreneur, and I'm sure Chris will concur, that when you're in a smaller company environment where you don't necessarily have the luxury of taking the time to write out those policies, you know, that's really the very environment where you do need them. Because as I'm right. reading through, you know, some of the behaviors uh, in that chapter, and I'm not going to go through them just for the sake of time, but, uh, you know, the, the book is just so chock full of 
practical stuff that you can just so easily relate to. So before we jump over to the the managing your boss and just touch on a couple of those points, I do want to touch on this last one because particularly for those in the Executive Girlfriends group who, who are in between successes right now and who are, are trying to figure out, you know, uh, should they be consulting, you know, because it is so hard to get a job if they have been out on their own consulting or in, in an entrepreneurial venture and are trying to figure out whether to go back into corporate life or if they're just afraid that they're going to be the next one to go and, and are having to think about their next job. The last uh, major chapter here is corporate culture. Is this the right place for you? And I think there's no better time to take a look at that than when you do have the luxury to figure out what is the right culture where you will thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we um, – well, actually, I do a lot of interviewing um, for people. I help people hire, and I'm always amazed how the the potential employee does not check out the culture of the company. They don't ask the right questions. They don't right. do their homework on – how the company actually works. They listen to what the, the representative of the company is saying, and they take that as the truth. And we all know that's not true, that you know, the, the culture of a company is never what they tell you it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, many companies say they're family-friendly, and then you get in and you find out they're the least family-friendly. Right. And we hear that repeatedly. So it's important that if you're about to take a job, that you speak to someone who works in the company or maybe someone who's left the company. And we give a whole bunch of questions you can ask in this last chapter mm-hmm. on, on how people are promoted, how people are rewarded. What, is the, uh, what happens if you have to leave early one day? Is that you're terribly um, outcast? You know, what, what is the outcome of that? And you'd be surprised. You, you, in other words, ask somebody, give me three adjectives to describe the culture. It, you'd be surprised. You can find out a lot about a culture before you take a job. And we right. also have a questionnaire in here for you to figure out what culture really is working for you at this time in your life. Because maybe before you have children, you know, you're, you're willing to work long hours and you're willing to, you know, do certain things. But then at another point, mm, I want more of a balance. Uh, and I want a f- more of a family-friendly company. So you have to understand what really is going to work for you and then try to find the right fit. I mean, I do meet a lot of HR people now that really are looking for fit more than they are skill because huh. they've learned that that's important. It is. Um, it's actually the single most important factor for success of an employee. Right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My husband has been out looking for a job, and he's 59 years old, and, it, you know, it's obviously fairly daunting, uh, you know, yeah. at his age to do that. Uh, but one company that he was interested in working for today sent him, uh, you know, rather than – I don't even think they looked at his, his uh, bio – but they actually sent him two personality tests. And then yeah. once he had taken them, they called him and they were like, oh, man, you are like the perfect fit. So <laughs> I mean, that, that is uh, you know, exactly what you're talking about. Well, uh, we only have a few minutes left, and I do want to just touch. Uh, so the book that we've been talking about for those who, who are uh, listening on demand uh, is called Working With You Is Killing Me. It's a national bestseller, and uh, the subtitle is Freeing Yourself from Emotional Traps at Work, and I love the cover. Uh, I'm also a sucker for uh, great design on the cover, and it's got a bunch of uh, papers and a a paper coffee cup with the title of the book on it and some crumpled paper and a pencil that's been broken in half. So, you know, I mean, it's just it's so expressive about the frustration that you can have. 
And uh, I love the quote at the bottom from USA Today, which says, a thoughtful approach to regaining control at work situations or of work situations that are out of hand. So if you have uh, anything going on in your life that uh, even begins to resemble any of those things that we talked about, uh, again, I think you'll find this an incredibly practical uh, book. But the other one before we... uh, uh, conclude the interview is is called working for you isn't working for me and again as a consultant i take a look at this and and as i consider who i even want to pitch business to life is just too short to work for people that make you miserable right. and um you know as we take a look at, at this the subtitle of this book is the ultimate guide to managing your boss and while we don't have time to walk through the entire table of contents in the way that we did of the previous book, I just want to share that, that there are really a couple of major sections to this book. One is detect, one is detach, one is personalize, and then the other one is deal. So maybe you guys can just address how you came up with that framework, which you know helps people kind of walk through uh, surfacing the issues and, and you know actually figuring out how to deal with them. So uh, I'll just turn it back over to you. Sure. Well, I'll I'll jump in for the first uh, couple. Detect, detach. Uh, we what we saw first of all is that the boss and actually authority. So it can be your clients because those are the authority figures for someone who's self-employed. The person who calls the shots. That relationship in, colors your work life more than any other relationship going. So, and therefore it needs to be managed in a very specific way. So detect in that chapter. What we do is we have you look at. We actually list 20 different kinds of difficult boss behaviors, and we distinguish between personalities and actual behaviors. So someone could be a chronic critic, means they criticize everything you do, but on the other hand, they may have excellent standards and may have a lot to teach you. Or someone else could be um, a liar, liar, which means that you have a hard time with the fact they never tell you the truth, but on the other hand, they're very clever at making sales, and there's something, you know, a value of that. So it's their... There are 20 different behaviors we have you look at to detect what is the behavior of the boss that is not working for me. And we also have you detect what coping mechanisms you may be using to handle this. So, for example, if I'm working for what we would call a control freak, a person who's very controlling, then I may be acting out in some way. Maybe I'm retaliating or maybe I'm obsessing about this person or maybe I'm shutting them out. So that first chapter is about detecting the behaviors that are driving you crazy and detecting the behavior that you're doing that probably is not helping your situation. Next we go into detach, and that is finding ways to separate yourself emotionally from the situation. And we say that you do this, not again, not by changing the person, but by taking care of yourself. And we give ideas for restoring your energy, repairing your emotional state, and rebuilding your confidence. I know time is short, so I'll stop right there. I'll give you depersonalizing, which I, I just love. Depersonalizing is learning to take your boss's or your client's, anyone's behavior less personally. And we do that by giving you a 60-question assessment where you come out understanding what your expectations are of authority, your needs are of authority, and what your fears are of authority. And when you start to have your own personal profile, you'll understand why you're taking the other person's behavior so personally. So it's an important assessment to to learn um, I don't have to take their behavior personally. They're not meeting my, my expectations or my needs, and they're tripping my fears. This is about me. I have to work on my end of it. 
And then deal, our last chapter, is actually learning how to do that, learning how to take their behavior less personally by adjusting your expectations, fulfilling your needs in a different way, and understanding how your fears are self-fulfilling prophecies. And I'll give you an example. If you have a fear of not being heard, and hopefully none of you, well, you may have it, um, what happens when you don't think people are hearing you or listening to you, you'll constantly repeat what you want to say. And you may say it even louder each time you say it. And that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because people right. stop listening. Right, right, right. And we do this with all of our fears. Whatever our fears are, my fear is I don't want to be held back. So I tend to get very aggressive with somebody who I feel is holding me back. Well, what do they do? They hold me back. They don't want my aggressive behavior. So I think I, I think our deal chapter is really breakthrough in teaching you how to see that about yourself. And that's well, and I, I can tell you again that in, you know in looking uh, through this one, and, and of course I don't expressly have a boss, uh, particularly when I'm not working for a client. But my husband has worked uh, with me for ten years, and even though I'm you know technically the CEO because he was playing the controller role, you know, quite literally on the financial side of the business, quite often it felt like I was working for him. So you know, I think that there are also for those people who are in entrepreneurial situations and, and who do work with their spouses, I think that there are many things about this particular book that, uh, again, are very, very practical uh, in, in being able to kind of uh, detect what to do about that situation, which, of course, uh, spills into the home life. Yes. 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 All right, well, I do want to take a, just a couple of minutes for questions. Um, and uh, who would like to ask the first question? And please remember to take your phone off of mute. I don't, it's just, Michelle, I don't have any questions. I think it's very enlightening, and I can't wait to go through and, and read it and assess myself, but also look at the the positions of some of the, the people that I've worked with and for in the past right? and do the questionnaire and see where it all comes together. Because, you know, in, in talking about the personality traits, you know, at one point I was the invisible one. I was the quiet one who would never say anything. But I, I'm sure that there are people on the call now who wouldn't believe that. <laughs> right. You grew out of it. Right. Right. Or... or didn't want to be held back. That's right. So what did I have to do to fix that? That's right. And um, so I, I don't have questions, but I, boy, I can't wait to get into it. So, and, Michelle, which one of the books is interesting to you? Because I did promise that the first person who asked a question would get to have one of these books. Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, probably the, the working with you is killing me. Okay, great. Great. Well, Marge, uh, you were the first one on the on the call electronically today, so uh, you'll be getting a copy of Working For You Isn't Working For Me. And again, I think that uh, being in between jobs, this one will be a very good one for you to be able to take a look at uh, the characteristics and the folks that you want to work, uh, oh, yeah. work with I, and work for. <laughs> I could have used this book 20 years ago. <laughs> in fact, when I, when I first left American and Sabre and, and, you know, Chicky knows, of course, and anyone works for large companies, it's full of all kinds of people. And I always had 
uh, the, the premise that, you know, people are dysfunctional in their personal lives, they're going to be dysfunctional in the workforce. Absolutely. And that has a lot to do with why, uh, you know, things work dysfunctionally sometimes. And I was even starting to write a book when I first left about 15, 16 years ago about uh, the different dysfunctions in, uh, in working in a corporate environment. I was going to make a kind of a comical book but also a how-to-survive-it book <laughs> because right. I saw lots of things, saw lots yeah. of things. But, uh, yeah, I find it, uh, I find it very interesting and, and certainly very, very relevant. So I look forward to reading the book. Thank you. Well, yeah, and actually I'd like to say that anyone who has a question or would like, we have a thing, a two-minute video blog that we put out every week, and if you'd like to join, please do. And if you'd like to send us a question, please do, because we answer in two minutes, Kathy speaking and then I speaking to the question, we provide an answer for a relevant business situation every week. And that's been a lot of fun for us and a great way to keep our hands in the material of both of the books. Well, that's really great. And their website, by the way, is K Squared Enterprises, uh, the letter K, the word squared, enterprises.com. And uh, while we were uh, talking, um, I did send you both an invitation to the Executive Girlfriends Group platform. The benefit about this platform is our, our members don't have to remember where to find you, but they can, uh, you know, take a look at uh, your your um, either your names or the book and and to be able to send you a question that will come to you by email. But if you want to Great. put information in there about how to get directly to that page, because I found it as we were talking as well. Um, you can put that link uh, over in the Executive Girlfriends Group platform. And also, as speakers, um, you both uh, are being sent uh, a complimentary membership uh, in the Executive Girlfriends Group, so you can feel free to join us at any time just to Thank listen you. in and, and to participate in the group. And uh, I also sent you an invitation to the local Egg Local Group in uh, in New York. And uh, you know, every couple of months they get together for lunch or drinks so uh, you would get a chance to meet some of the other other women well, that we you. have in the group. Terrific. Thank you. All right, terrific. Do we have any other uh, questions or comments before uh, we turn to the other part of our call? Oh, this is Chris, and I just want to say thank you. I, I, I can't wait to, as I look back over my career, <laughs> I look forward to actually labeling some of these people. <laughs> <laughs> that is the fun part, Chris. <laughs> Putting a name and for hopefully, them. you know, and and as well as I was able to see already quickly because I was doing a little, um, you know, kind of tree as I was listening, already see where my own personal growth helped me move away from certain bosses, and I can yeah, see that's right. Quickly, I mean, here it is. Like you can see, actually annually your own either personal improvement or growth or whatever and never having had that kind of boss again, stepping out of that role, creating a new one for yourself, um, all of those kind of things. So that's really kind of, you know, for those of us who are introspective, um, really fascinating and fun. So thank you. You're welcome. Our pleasure. All right, great. Well, I am going to stop the recording because uh, the rest of what's said on the egg call stays on the egg call. So thank you guys so much for uh, for being on today. And like I thank said, you. I'll be getting the MP3 loaded. Uh, usually I get that done by Saturday morning. So Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Right, thanks, guys. Bye, bye now. Thank you.